My name is Maria Paul, and I am a senior at Kirkwood High School. This is the fourth episode of my podcast, The Deeper Meaning of OCD. As someone who suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder and utilizes coping skills throughout my daily life, I feel passionate about creating and sharing a well-rounded compilation of resources from different perspectives for those with similar struggles. Today, I'm once again joined with Beth Brawley, who is a licensed professional counselor from St. Louis, Missouri. She is an expert in the field and has ample experience treating OCD. In the last episode, we talked about treating options for OCD, where we focused on exposure and response prevention therapy. Today, we will be talking all about the OCD-related disorders that often accompany the disorder. Um, so welcome again, Beth. Thanks, Maria. Um, so like I said on, on our last episode, we talked a lot about um, treatments, and so I thought that this would be a good segue into this episode, um, you know, obviously addressing a lot of the disorders that are commonly, um, you know, have, share similar traits with OCD and commonly yes. seen with people that struggle with OCD, um, and yes. also talking about treatment options for that, like how, you know, similarly are they treated. Um, so I guess... I would like to hear maybe your um, experience with treating these disorders and kind of where your specialties are among these disorders. Yeah, so I would love to start with body-focused repetitive behaviors. Um, I think when we're looking at OCD-related disorders, we can see uh, body-focused repetitive behaviors. We call those BFRBs. There's so many acronyms in the world of yes. therapy and OCD <laughs> therapy. Um, but yes, yeah, so BFRBs, this, this is a big one, um, and it is honestly such an underserved population right now. Mm -hmm. um, I've spoken at the conference a few times, and it's just, you know, people kind of getting information for the very first time of, mm -hmm. this is something that I've been doing for years, and I had no idea it was a thing. I just thought, like, I was the only one, or what was wrong with me that I can't stop doing this? So, um, thankfully, we're starting to talk about BFRBs more mm -hmm. um, and getting more information out there. But again, like it's still, it still remains an under underserved population. And, you know, just speaking to from my experience as a therapist in St. Louis, there's just not that many clinicians that are appropriately trained, um, which, you know, continues to be a problem. But um, if we're going to go into a little bit more about BFRBs, we're looking at these compulsive, um, really uh, I mean, body focused behaviors, but we're looking at things that we're doing that go beyond what is typical or normal. So it's pretty normal as a human to do some grooming. Um, you have a zit, you want to maybe pick at it, take care of it, move on. Mm -hmm. um, you want to kind of like pluck at your eyebrows or, or whatever it is, and then you can move on. But the difference here is that what really can be a pretty adaptive normal behavior goes to the excessive, goes to the extreme, which we also see right. in obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. Um, so in, in the world of BFRBs, we can see what's called trichotillomania. So compulsive hair pulling disorder, uh, dermatillomania or excoriation disorder, which is more the skin picking um, disorder. But I mean, really it can be it can be so many things. There can be, you know, someone can struggle com with compulsive nose picking or mm -hmm. compulsive um, cheek biting or picking at your fingernails or biting the fingernails. And again, these are things that are going beyond what would be typical. So we're seeing maybe infections happening or, you know, open wounds, bleeding, scarring mm -hmm. um, for people who really struggle with uh, trichotillomania, or we call it trick. Um, you know, it can be various levels of severity, but these people can really suffer from, you know, not having eyebrows or eyelashes or, you know, having to wear wigs um, or really struggling with going to get a haircut because they're, they may have bald patches on their scalp that they're, you know, experiencing some shame or embarrassment about. So the world of BFRBs is huge, all-encompassing. I didn't talk about all of them because again, it's really any kind of body grooming behavior that goes to the extreme. Mm -hmm. I just, I think that they are so interesting, you know, as, as someone that mm -hmm. uh, does is a compulsive skin picker. And honestly, like I think that I've been doing that, like you said, since like childhood, you know, and never realized yes. that it was um, an issue. And I think especially just kind of like, you know, going through puberty and getting more yes. like, yes. face, like that is when it really blossomed into, um, you know, an issue. And mm -hmm. um, 
I, I still, you know, struggle with that. Like I, it's to the point where sometimes like I will be, you know, waking up in the morning or totally focused on something else, looking at my phone, looking at the TV, whatever it is. And I don't even notice myself picking. Yes. It's like yes. conscious. Yes. Um, so I think that's a big thing, you know, from my personal experience is it's like, it feels like it's out of your control. Totally. Um, and that's like one of the very first things that we would address in therapy with the BFRB is the awareness factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to say, you know, how can you stop doing something you're not even aware that you're doing? And so right. first we have to have that awareness of what's going on. Um, and when it's happening to start to look at other, you know, options moving forward in treatment, but totally, you're totally right. Um, I think more people struggle with the BFRB than probably realize. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I think that also goes for OCD too. Like we were talking about last episode, like, you know, there is such a high demand and a lot of people that don't even know, um, you know, they have OCD because there's just such a stereotype of, you know, I always Mm -hmm. thought of OCD as like, germophobia and staying clean and I have a terribly messy room <laughs> so I was like yes, I never yes. Um, yes so that's where the education you know once again is lacking and so it sounds like absolutely also carries over to all these related disorders as well absolutely and I think part of the stigma too that we're you know trying to like work on breakthrough is that the kind of representation that we see um, in our society, social media, media, whatever, kind of portraying OCD as one note. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you said, you know, there's like only one type of OCD and it is for people who are compulsively clean. And so if you don't, if you have a messy room then you must not have OCD Mm -hmm. Um, or those like silly sweatshirts and, you know, like little picture frames that are like obsessive Christmas disorder, whatever, you know, it's like, for people saying like, I'm so OCD. Oh my word. Yes. I could talk all day about that. Like I literally roll my eyes so much about stuff like that because it's just so out there. And again, it's, you know, it's, I think leading part of the issue of leading people not to get the treatment that they deserve. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, um, you know, bringing that back to my personal experience with the compulsive skin picking, like I have, you know, been at sleepovers and stuff where like, like I said, one of the main times where, where I'll notice my skin picking is waking up in the morning when I'm not fully, you know, like aware of what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and you know, like my, my face will be bleeding and I have had multiple instances Mm -hmm. where friends are like, you know, oh my gosh, like you're, you're bleeding. Mm -hmm. Like, why don't stop picking? Like that's, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. there is that embarrassment factor. And I've definitely dealt with that where I'm insecure because I've got, you know, Mm -hmm. like raw spots on my face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But for me, I, it's like, and I, I I think this is probably a common reason. It's like almost like a relief or some kind of release of anxious energy. Um, And so I think I've kind of, you know, working with my own therapist, I've kind of gotten more to that awareness point where I'll notice Mm -hmm. myself doing it, but it's Mm -hmm. more the like deciding to, you know, pick up a fidget or do something else. Yes, absolutely. Because it's so, it's just such a habit and it's such a like way Mm -hmm. to release that anxious energy at this point. Completely. Really hard to, you know, resist. Yes. It is. And I I love what you said about like identifying there can be so much cognitive, Mm -hmm. um, emotional, um, kind of like push behind a BFRB. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a lot of different things that could feed into it, but I love what you said about, you know, it's not enough to just like, oh, just don't do it. (laughs) You know, like we hear, you know, great advice. No, not so much. Um, but like, like you said of, okay, so instead of performing this behavior, what can I do instead Mm -hmm. to kind of like channel this energy somewhere that, you know, leaves me not having a, you know, bleeding face or, you know, that lets my eyebrows grow back in. And so I think it's looking a lot of the treatment too, is looking at like, what's feeding this, what's the function of the behavior. Mm -hmm. And then what are some other things that we could do instead that are in line with our values and actually, you know, serve us um, Mm -hmm. in a more, you know, beneficial way. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, I actually have a question for you and I I don't know if this is a question or not, but I've always wondered like, would BFRBs, especially like excessive, you know, where your, your skin is raw or you're like having bald patches and, um, would that be considered self-harm in any instances Mm. or is it different? That is not a silly question. That's actually a great question. Um, And that's a question I've answered a lot um, because I think that can be, 
you know, a concern of like, well, I'm engaging with my skin in a way that's leading to harm Mm -hmm. and it's myself is that self-harm. And Mm -hmm. so in the world of BFRBs, we do like to talk about, it is not self-harm. Those are really two very separate and different behaviors. Mm -hmm. Now someone can struggle with self-harm and have a BFRB. Mm -hmm. Um, but the difference here is that you know, self-harm typically, and again, like this is in a nutshell, but when we're looking at self-harm, you know, we're looking at kind of that like fantasizing aspect of like, this is something that in this moment kind of feels in line with what I want for myself. It feels like it's going to be, um, you know, maybe like, I know it's going to cause harm to myself, but in this moment, it kind of feels like I need to do it. It's going to make me feel better. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone who's really struggling with a BFRB is experiencing it in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say that, I mean, you know, looking at like, I'm doing this, but I really don't want to be doing this. Like maybe part of me wants to be doing this because I need to release this like anxious energy mm-hmm. um, or it's kind of fulfilling this like sensory component, right. but it's like, it doesn't leave you feeling the same way that self-harm can lead someone to someone feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's kind of a misconception too, that someone may struggle with of like, well, I, I don't want to get help for this because I'm maybe worried about being judged for self-harming behaviors, which right. like they both deserve appropriate and respectful treatment. Right. Um, but I think it's like, it's looking at the function behind the behavior. Why am I about to engage in what I'm engaging in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So So I wonder then, like, would you say that those compulsive behaviors of, you know, whatever it is, the skin picking or the hair pulling, nose picking, you know, whatever it is, would you say that that's more comparable to like a ritual in the sense that it's like Mm. an unhealthy, like way to kind of get some relief from anxious energy? Yeah, that's, that's also a great question because we're looking at, you know, it's very similar to OCD in that compulsive Mm -hmm. nature. Now the intrusive thought or the, you know, obsessive thinking can be very different. Um, but it's like that compulsive nature of maybe I just have to do this until I feel a certain way and then I can be completed. Then then the picking or pulling session is completed. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, again, it's, it's not OCD. Someone can have OCD and not have a BFRB mm-hmm. and vice versa, but you know, it's looking at how they really feed off of each other in a very similar right. pattern. Yeah. It's, it's definitely that compulsive. I, I have to do this or else. Right. I can, yeah, I can, you know, see that within myself, like, because I do have OCD tendencies, you know, because I have diagnosed OCD, like I can see how for me that does transfer over to, you know, the BFRB um, because of that, just like seeking that, like whatever it is, that little like release of anxious Mm -hmm. energy or that relief from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it, it is heightened when I'm stressed. Like if I'm taking a test or, you know, something stressful is happening instantly, it's like the urges to pick are, you know, totally escalated. Um, right. Absolutely. For me, at least. Yes. Yes. Completely. Yeah. So, okay. How about treatments? What do you do when a client comes to you with a BFRB? Yes. So, in the world of BFRB, so we're still looking at that cognitive behavioral therapy umbrella. And so underneath that, we're looking at um, specifically habit reversal training or HRT. And then we have what's called like, it's the COMB. Um, So C-O-M-B, it's the cognitive, it's the comprehensive behavioral model of treating this. So both of these treatment methods and with a BFRB, we're going to be very I guess I could say fluid in, in kind of like what we're doing with OCD. Um, in OCD, we're using exposure response prevention, but we're also pulling from ACT and acceptance commitment therapy. We're pulling mindfulness, self-compassion. Um, and so within BFRBs, we're going to use, you know, we can use some exposure, um, but we're looking at increasing awareness. We're looking at identifying competing responses. Like you said, those fidgets very, can be very helpful. Um, and then we're also looking at increasing like someone's social support. So how do we, how do we include the people around us, um, to the degree that we feel comfortable with, um, in helping us, you know, engage in a different option in that moment, but then also like in the, 
um, comprehensive behavioral model. We're looking at what's called SCAMP. Again, so many acronyms, we cannot get away from them. Yeah. So sensory, <laughs> cognitive, affect, motor, and place. So we want to do a really comprehensive like dissecting of when this behavior happens, why does it happen? How does it happen? Um, what's going on for you internally? What's the thought process behind it? What's the emotion behind it? Um, so there's so many different things that can feed that BFRB. And so we want to identify kind of in each area uh, what's going on so that we can then come up with an attack plan. Um, so if we know you are really struggling with you know, pulling your hair when you're driving on your long commute to work, mm -hmm. that's definitely maybe looking at some boredom, some mind, mind, like mindlessness. Mm -hmm. um, and then also like a place of your car so that we can specifically, specifically target mm -hmm. um, when you're in your car and what would be helpful in that moment. Interesting. So it is kind of more of like, as you know, a lot of different therapies are, but a holistic approach and then kind of tailoring it or customizing it to completely and kind of like some detective work like figuring out yes yes and how completely. that's really interesting yeah um so moving on to another big one that I see you know across my whole generation my peers mm -hmm. I see a lot of um people my age specifically that are struggling with you know their eating and I think a lot of the time body dysmorphic disorder is yes playing some kind of role in it so tell me yes. about tell me all about body yeah. dysmorphic disorder huge huge problem so many people struggle with it and it's hard it's hard to treat because so when we're looking at body dysmorphic disorder so when we're assessing for OCD there are certain questions on our assessment tool the Y box mm -hmm. um the Yale Brown obsessive compulsive skill so there are specific questions on there looking at is this person potentially also struggling with body dysmorphic disorder so this BDD is different than like poor body image or a bad body image in that like bad body image is like, you know, overall, I just do not like um, how I can't tolerate the way that I'm looking. Body dysmorphic disorder is very hyper-focused on very specific parts of our body. Um, so I can give a little case example in that I had someone come in for treatment that had body dysmorphic disorder and they were hyper-focused on their nose and the perceived flaws that they had in their nose. And do you want to know, so this person came into therapy only after three rhinoplasties, the three nose jobs, when finally a surgeon, when they were going for their fourth nose job, a surgeon was like, have you seen a therapist before? Um, because they were going for the same thing over and over and over because of this distaste, this, you know, compulsive need to have the quote unquote perfect nose, mm -hmm. but there really isn't one. Um, so oftentimes an individual who's struggling with BDD is going to see um, a plastic surgeon before a therapist. Wow, that's really interesting, the correlation with that. And I, mm -hmm. I would assume that a lot of plastic surgeons have be become accustomed to, you know, that disorder, especially since it, it seems like it's kind of on the rise these days, right? And I would, I would say, you know, we're talking about it more. And so we may think, you know, this is on the rise, like, well, sure. I'm glad that we're talking about it more. And, you yeah. know, my hope is that more, more plastic surgeons, more doctors would be on the look for this. Um, instead of like, oh, you're, you know, you don't like this part of your body immediately. Let's go to surgery mm -hmm. where it's like, well, let's talk about it. And let's really talk about what's behind this. Um, especially for individuals who are putting themselves at increased risk when we're mm -hmm. having multiple surgeries on the same body part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So once again, it's kind of that detective work of, you know, what are the motives? What's the, mm -hmm. the core of, you know, this, this fixation? Absolutely. We look for that core fear um, and we look for you know, one of the ways I have my clients check in with themselves is, you know, what's the intention behind this behavior? Mm -hmm. What's the intention of, you know, going to see this plastic surgeon again? Am I hoping mm -hmm. to get certainty? Am I hoping to feel, you know, a very specific way? And if I don't, it's not okay. It's not mm -hmm. tolerable. And I need to go back again. So check in with ourselves. What's the intention behind what I'm about to do? So once again, it's kind of that compulsive behavior then of like, you know, constantly like 
feeling this like irresistible urge to do something to in this case like fix your your appearance in some way mm-hmm. um but it's never really met as and hence absolutely keeps you know bothering yes. that person Right, right. In body dysmorphic disorder, there's not, there's not a solution in terms of going to get something quote unquote fixed mm-hmm. surgically is not going to make the disorder go away. It's never enough. Exactly. Exactly. Just like with OCD, you know that like you do, the more you do, the more it feeds. Yep. Having fuel for the fire. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's interesting. So, um, as far as treatment goes with that, I know you said that it's a harder one to treat, um, why is that? That's a great question. So, so I find, and we're looking at with, with body dysmorphic disorder being harder to treat is that there can be a lack of awareness that the way I'm engaging with this body part of myself is actually a problem. Mm-hmm. So like we talk about kind of ego dystonic, ego syntonic last time, this one can feel very ego syntonic of like, these thoughts are not a real problem. Um, they're real, they're valid. Like I, I, this, this flaw in me is severe and it's needing to be fixed. And so, right. you know, oftentimes um, maybe they're coming in for treatment because someone else has like told them, like, if you don't do this, then, you know, I'm leaving or, you know, there can be that motivation, which, you know, not, not super helpful. Um, but also too, with, with the work, it's hard in, you know, kind of laying down that fight to achieve perfection or that fight to achieve hundred percent certainty. Um, we're going to look at, you know, CBT act ERP. I do a lot of mirror work with these individuals. Um, so, you know, instead of looking at a mirror and placing morality, placing judgment on, um, I don't like the way my skin looks uh, mm-hmm. on my face and, you know, look at all these things that are wrong with it. We would actually just do like a scan Mm-hmm. Um, in a completely mindful, non-judgmental way. So starting from here, I might go down and say, um, I, I see a scar on mm-hmm. my upper right forehead and I see two brown eyebrows and there are a few um, I, there are a few hairs that are out of place and I see green eyes. And so you see that I'm just identifying facts. Mm-hmm. I'm just identifying what is without saying like, I like that. I don't like that. We're not placing judgment on it. So we can get more to a place of my body is here to help me function in the world. And my body is not something that is here to be judged or here to um, meet certain criteria that society tells me it needs to meet. Right. So that's interesting. So it, it may, treatment may look more like, um, I mean, I, I know that there's an element of treatment to all of these disorders, but like really focusing on that, like change in perspective of like how, mm-hmm. you know, you're viewing your body and how you're viewing, um, the way it meets, you know, specific beauty standards or doesn't meet specific beauty standards. Completely. Yeah, absolutely. What you're describing is that radical acceptance piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm accepting what is, I'm accepting reality for what it is rather than what I think it should be. I'm accepting my body for what it is, how it is rather than what I think it should be. Mm-hmm. And that's hard work yeah. because that's not what's sold to us when we go to Target and right. see the, you know, advertisements or we're right. watching TV or, you know, on social media. So it is really, like you said, changing the perspective, changing how we're interacting with our bodies. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, working with my own, um, OCD, um, a lot of the time I have to kind of fake it till I make it, you know, like I do like totally give in to this intrusive thought that scares, you know, it's, it's so scary. And, um, you know, having to be like, Oh, like, I'm just going to let that be there. I'm not going to play. Any yes. But like, yeah, I am like, you know, fighting against myself. Yes. It's such a huge urge. And so it sounds like that's kind of a similar thing of, you know, even if you don't necessarily feel um, radical acceptance towards, you know, all these parts of your body, like just telling yourself with repetition, um, 
is kind of the key, right? It's like creating those new thinking habits. Absolutely. New, new, new patterns of thought, new patterns of behavior. And what I like to say is that you don't have to be in a place of self-love to Mm -hmm. act loving towards yourself. You don't have to be in a place of like, I love every part of my body Mm -hmm. to act in a way that's compassionate, gentle, kind, loving, caring towards your body. And so I think like, that's exactly what you're describing of you know, this is important. I deserve compassion. I'm going to act that way, even though maybe I don't want to, I'm going to do it anyway. Right. And that's where the real progress comes in with all of these. Totally. Um, Yep. Yeah. That's awesome. So one question, and I can't remember if you said this or not, but body dysmorphic disorder, does it always, or is it most often like a fixation on like one or, you know, a couple body parts or is it sometimes a whole, you know, whole body fixation? So if someone is really experiencing um, distaste or, you know, not liking their entire body, we would not typically classify that as body dysmorphic disorder because okay. that's going to be yeah. a very specific, yeah, hyperfixation on a certain part of our body. Got it. And so that would classify more as poor body image than if it were a whole yeah. fixation. And honestly, like, I like what you said too, when we talked about this, this podcast, I totally agree. Like, you know, we don't want to get caught up in like, in terms of treatment in like sure. what exactly is going on with me. Cause that can be a compulsion too, of like, yes. I need to know with certainty exactly what yes. type of OCD this is, or exactly what type of anxiety disorder this is. It's mm-hmm. helpful. Um, but the treatment is so similar, mm-hmm. um, that like whether someone's struggling with body dysmorphic disorder proper, or mm-hmm. really struggling more, more so with like poor body image, I'm going to help you in a very similar way because yeah. the, the fact remains that you are more than what your body looks like. And your mm-hmm. body is not here to be, you know, looked at it's here to help you do the things that you want to do in this world. Yeah. I know all about that. I, you know, I am <laughs> the worst, especially when receiving my OCD diagnosis, I had so many urges to, you know, I was constantly asking my therapist, like, so am I diagnosed? Like, what do I have? Like, are we sure? And she was like, Nope, <laughs> not going to tell me. <laughs> And so I really, you know, didn't get yes. a lot of information with the yes. initial, you know, first sessions with the diagnosis. Cause it was like, I was like, I need to make sure I, I have narrowed it down. Like the exact thing I have so that I can have the right therapy. But she told me the same thing as you is the reality is, you know, a lot of these are very connected and mm-hmm. so that, that makes the therapy kind of treat an umbrella of mm-hmm. you know, different things. Totally. Yep. So that's important too. That that was an important thing for me to come to terms with and accept. It's hard. Yeah. As humans, humans want to understand mm-hmm. why things are the way they are. It's a very human trait. So yes. at least Maria, you're not alone in that. We yes. all really struggle with that to a degree, but you know, I think it's looking at like kind of laying down again, that like urge to figure something out hundred percent certain, certainly. Um, and sitting with and accepting that, like, it's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to move forward with recovery, even Mm -hmm. though my brain is telling me that I need to figure something else out. Right. Right. And it all goes back to uncertainty. It's like, you know, the the OCD part of my brain is like, well, well, we shouldn't, you know, do this therapy, like, you know, it tries to do everything to get you sidetracked. So yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sneaky. It is. (laughs) So (laughs) I wanted to talk a little bit, um, about eating disorders, comorbid eating. Um, how does that relate to the body dysmorphic disorder? Okay. So eating disorders, that's a whole thing. We could talk about that, you know, for such a long period of time too. Um, But in a nutshell, we're looking at very similar um, kind of features in eating disorders and in anxiety disorders or specifically like OCD. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is a high comorbidity in terms of individuals that have eating disorders experiencing an anxiety disorder and or OCD as well, um, because we're looking at these individuals share very rigid um, patterns of perfectionism, Mm -hmm. guilt, responsibility, and very extremely high standards Mm -hmm. for themselves. And that compulsive need to feel a certain way or else like something is not okay. So it's this like quest 
um, really where the perfectionism, the guilt, the responsibility, the high standards kind of all tag team um, to keep you really trapped in the eating disorder, in the OCD um, behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, how common would you say body dysmorphic disorder is accompanied with, um, you know, some kind of eating disorder? So they can be, that can be comorbid too. I don't have like a specific um, number in front of sure. me, yeah. but you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, an eating disorder can really function as like, you know, just my body is not okay, or I'm not safe mm-hmm. in the body that I'm currently residing in. Um, and then this individual could experience body dysmorphic disorder as well of like, okay, my whole body sucks, mm-hmm. but I'm also highly concerned about, you know, my size and their over, you know, this, um, they're not proportionate or they're disfigured, disformed. Um, there's going to be a lot of worries about really being kind of disfigured in a way mm-hmm. with body dysmorphic disorder. Um, whereas with OCD, again, can have them both, but it's not always the, the case. Sure. Um, eating disorders, not all eating disorders are focused on, um, body image, mm-hmm. um, or a fear of, you know, being quote unquote fat or not being mm-hmm. in an okay or acceptable body. Uh, there is an eating disorder, ARFID, uh, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder that we do classify in the family of OCD because okay. this individual is not concerned about body image. Mm-hmm. The fear with food and the avoidance of food is coming from a different place. So okay. maybe a fear of what if I choke and die? Um, mm-hmm. So I don't eat anything, you know, hard or crunchy. Um, well, I can't stand, I can't tolerate the sensory issues with okay. soft or mushy foods. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm worried about having an allergic reaction, even though I don't have any evidence that I am allergic to foods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there can be so many different, you know, things that feed our fed. Um, and again, it's them, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. What if this food is not pure enough? It's not clean enough. So I don't eat this food. Um, and then, so it looks like an eating disorder, uh, but really it's functioning as OCD. Interesting. So there is kind of some overlap with these two yes. Yes. disorders. Yes. So what does treatment look like then for, I mean, I, I know there's a range, but is it kind of similar to, you know, anxiety disorders where there's kind of an umbrella, a general yes. treatment? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so, you know, we can attack that with, again, that CBC umbrella has so mm-hmm. many offshoots that are so yes. incredibly helpful. Um, so, you know, we're looking at Um, exposing ourselves to the foods that are either fear foods, or maybe they're even trauma foods. Maybe there's a trauma component to someone's Mm -hmm. eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're creating a hierarchy. We are going after, you know, what is the fear if you eat certain food? Mm -hmm. Um, And then looking at exposing yourself to that food and really sitting with the uncertainty, tolerating the discomfort, Mm -hmm. um, and really engaging in our lives in the way that we want our life to look like. So many you know, holidays or so many gatherings, friends, family, a lot of it revolves around food. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like looking, it's looking at, I want to be able to live my life and attend these events and gatherings and whatever, um, not having food hold so much power over me. And so I need to expose myself to that, sit with the distress and learn that this is actually a tolerable event. Interesting. I find that so interesting that, you know, that there's so many parallels with um, doing exposure therapy for OCD, like, you know, having to sit with that discomfort and take away like the significance or the importance of, you know, that, that urge to ritualize or that intrusive thought. Um, That's so interesting that it really is kind of the same line of thought, um, Mm -hmm. doing hard things and sitting with, um, with discomfort. Completely, completely. And, you know, it, it can look a little bit different in terms of like, if someone is struggling with OCD and they're thinking, you know, their intrusive thought is like, well, if I do this thing the wrong way, then, you know, um, maybe you, my family member might die. Mm-hmm. So we would sit with like, okay, maybe that'll happen. Like, okay, OCD, like, bring it on. I'm, I'm not going to change my behavior. I'm going to sit with this. For someone with an eating disorder, um, and for the record, like, I don't think 
the word fat is not inherently bad. It can be made problematic by the stigma that's attached to it. Like, let's say someone is like, if I eat this food, I will be unacceptable, fat, rejected, mm -hmm. awful, disgusting person. Um, well, I'm probably not going to have them sit there and be like, yeah, I'm an awful, disgusting, horrible person. Right. Um, but sitting with, you know, challenging these thoughts and looking at, I am more than my body. Mm -hmm. um, and I am more than what my body uh, looks like. Um, and so it's a little bit different in that way, but there again, so much, so much overlap in the treatment. Okay. Um, so I wanted to kind of go back to when we were talking a little bit about, um, body dysmorphic disorder, how, um, there's a need for more education among like, you know, plastic surgeons and medical doctors mm -hmm. to be kind of on the same page with, mm -hmm. you know, therapists approach to, you know, these disorders and that, you know, highly correlates with, um, or highly is, you know, similar with illness, anxiety disorder. Yes. Uh, and I know that personally, because I, um, really struggle with that. A lot of my intrusive thoughts and fears are based around, um, different illnesses and, you know, I'm, I'm always having these urges to Google and I'm mm -hmm. always so self-aware of like all the different bodily symptoms and very yes. triggered into a panic, um, mm -hmm. because of symptoms, it just always feels mm -hmm. so urgent. Um, yes. so I, you know, was constantly, you know, a year ago telling my mom, like, please make a doctor appointment. And so I was like, yes. totally like annoying my doctor. Cause every time she's <laughs> like, you're, you're okay. You know, you're fine. <laughs> I'm not yeah. And every time it would be like, phew, okay. She says I'm okay. And then yeah. I don't know, maybe a week later, I'm like, well, maybe I didn't describe it well enough. Yes. Or maybe, you know, she was wrong about something. Maybe I need to get a second opinion. Maybe I need to yes. see a specialist doctor. So it is just, you know, a terrible cycle to get into. And yeah. I firsthand. Yes, uh, you do. Yeah. And so I think I have a great doctor now who really like, knows kind of that I have, good. um, I'm prone to kind of seeking that reassurance. And so she's really yeah. good about saying, you know, I've checked you out. You're okay. Now don't come back again. You know, <laughs> good for her. Yes. <laughs> great. But I know, I mean, I've had other doctors in the past that, um, weren't so you know aware of the yeah. uh, mental side of things yes. for, for yes. me personally um so I wanted to talk about that a little too because I'm sure you come mm -hmm. across that especially with clients with illness anxiety disorder that are constantly you know going to the doctors and seeking that reassurance I mean absolutely in and of itself is kind of like that reassurance seeking is that considered like a ritual completely yes um, and typically someone who is struggling with health anxiety disorder, uh, what you're describing also really, you know, correlates well with panic, mm -hmm. uh, disorder yes. and these individuals, you know, one thing I'll ask them is like, how often do you go to your doctor or how mm -hmm. often do you go to the emergency room? Mm -hmm. And typically it's like, I'm there frequently yeah. and you know, whether or not they are educated, the medical professionals, they're educated in what panic disorder looks like, or what illness anxiety disorder looks like can really, like you said, Maria, you know, kind of determine the path you take, you know, mm -hmm. is your doctor, you know, consistently like, oh, you're right. Like, let me refer you to this specialist. Mm -hmm. And that didn't work. So let me refer you to this other specialist. And then you're getting the message that there is something very wrong with you and no mm -hmm. one knows what it is. So now you're more anxious and afraid. Yes. And it's just such a messy cycle. Yes. Um, I think you put it beautifully is that you never actually get the long lasting relief that you're right. seeking. Right. It's always temporary. And my, yep. It's, it's a hard thing. I think it's a hard situation for therapists to be put in also, because I know, you know, talking with my therapist saying, you know, I am one of my big things is convinced that I have a brain tumor because I have pretty frequent, okay. pretty frequent, yes. also both symptoms of anxiety, but you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, convinced that it's something really seriously wrong with my mm -hmm. head. Um, and so, you know, I would constantly be telling my therapist in session that, you know, these intrusive thoughts were making me feel honestly really depressed because I mm. had convinced myself with such certainty that it was the case. So almost yeah. like false certainty. Yes. Um, and you know, it was hard for her and she had to really just, she didn't sugarcoat things and it was a hard pill to swallow, but she ultimately was like, you know, you've been checked out before, 
but you have to drop it. Like I, I could be taking yeah. risk right now. Like you could really have a terminal illness and yes. I'm you not to go to the doctor, but I'm convinced that the anxiety and the compulsions and the obsessions with it are more harmful to you than like the, you know, yes, very slight chance that yes. it could be true. And that's, I mean, that's a really hard thing to say to someone. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I just, I really sympathize with her and it was a hard pill for me to swallow, but yeah. it was like, I just had to kind of say like, you know, Jesus, take the wheel, you know, I'm right. taking the control away because you know, the reality is I could be getting a million MRIs and, and seeing all these mm-hmm. different doctors, but like we said, it's temporary relief. And in the Absolutely. end, you're just adding more fuel to the fire and it's becoming more powerful, your mm-hmm. OCD. Um, yeah. And that's where I was headed. So yeah, it's yeah. really difficult to be like, okay, I'm not going to go to the doctor anymore. I'm just it's so hard. Yes. Feelings. And yeah. I still struggle. Like it's, it's hard, mm-hmm. but um, it's, it's so tricky with illness, anxiety disorder specifically, because, you know, there could be something wrong and you don't know, but you have to sit with that uncertainty and kind of find a line mm-hmm. to draw. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I, I love what you're saying, because you're putting it so beautifully in looking at really what is the difference between information gathering mm-hmm. and reassurance seeking. Right. So information gathering, that's when like, I don't know the answer to this. It's new. I haven't consulted, you know, my therapist or my doctor or whatever about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going to make an appointment, you know, I don't have to go today, but I'll, I'll make an appointment and I can check this out versus like, okay, now I have the information that like doctor says things are okay. Right. I'm going to move forward with my life. Now we're getting into reassurance speaking when it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, but what if they're wrong? So let me see let me consult Dr. Google, right. um, or let me, let me consult my mom or let Google me is no good. <laughs> oh, not your friend ever, ever, no. ever. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah. So then it's looking at like, am I seeking information about something I've already ha- gotten an answer to? Mm-hmm. And I'm really going in with like one correct answer mm-hmm. in my mind. And this needs to be what this person tells me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're looking at like the compulsive nature to that as well of, you know, am I going to keep seeking a hundred percent certainty on this? Or am I going to sit with, you know what I've done? I've done what I can do. Um, I consulted someone who knows better about, you know, brain tumors or whatever it right. is than I do. Um, and so I'm going to really just sit with this sit with this discomfort and continue to move forward with my day. Right. Yeah. I, um, you know, this is all totally up my alley. I, um, do a lot of exposures specifically like, you know, watching videos of people with terminal illness and, um, Mm -hmm. like writing my own scripts of like the worst case scenario. You know how debilitating it is because it feels just so incredibly urgent. Um, yeah. And I think, like you said, it kind of teeters, at least for me, my personal experience with the symptoms feeling so urgent, it does kind of teeter, you know, I don't have many panic attacks, but at this point I used to have a lot of panic Mm -hmm. attacks and I think I was diagnosed with panic disorder. I don't have a lot now, but I do get in that panic mode where all of a sudden, like I'm fixating on a symptom and then all these other symptoms come and I kind of feel myself about to be sucked in, um, you know, to, to a panic attack. Um, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit too, like how, um, how common is that among people with OCD? Would that be considered an OCD related disorder or, or not like panic disorder? You mean panic disorder? Yeah. So, so it's, we're really looking at kind of a standalone diagnosis, um, under the umbrella of anxiety disorder. So like in the diagnostic and statistical manual, the DSM OCD gets its own chapter. Um, it used to be in the anxiety disorder chapter, and then that was revised. So panic disorder is going to be in that more anxiety category. But at the same time, we're looking at a very similar pattern in in the like anxiety cycle that we talked about Mm -hmm. last time. I feel, you know, I have a thought, um, a worry, a doubt, whatever Mm -hmm. it intrudes, you know, into my mind. And then I feel anxious in, in, uh, regards to that, then I perform some sort of ritual, some sort of compulsive behavior. And then I get exactly what you said, Maria, 
some temporary relief. Mm -hmm. It does not last long. It never does. And then I have the whole cycle over again. So we're seeing that too with panic disorder of, you know, I'm worried about potentially having another panic attack. And Mm so I'm going to change my behavior drastically to ensure that doesn't happen. And then life gets really, really small. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that also connects to agoraphobia, right? Yes. Talk yes. to me about that. Yeah. So agoraphobia. So it used to be kind of like hand in hand. Like mm-hmm. if someone has panic disorder, they're, you know, always struggling with agoraphobia as well. And so now we're looking at there's panic disorder with or without agoraphobia. So agoraphobia being that um, really heightened, intense fear of it's going to be, um, different for each person too. Maybe I'm worried about standing in long lines Mm -hmm. in an open area or going to a crowded space or, um, you know, not being in a place and not really knowing where the exit is. So that Mm -hmm. feeling of being trapped. So someone can have agoraphobia without panic disorder and someone can have panic disorder without agoraphobia. Um, but oftentimes they, they can fall, you know, together for someone's experience of, Mm -hmm. I have, I'm so, so worried about having a panic attack, losing my mind, mm-hmm. uh, having a heart attack, dying, whatever that fear is. So why would I want to go grocery shopping if that's the case? I'm going to stay right. home where like I'm quote unquote safe. Um, and I have, you know, some semblance of control over my environment, which I don't have when I go out in public. So right. yeah, obviously such a vicious cycle um, for someone, because then when I'm doing that, I'm reinforcing to myself that going out and doing things is not a safe experience. And in order to be okay, I must stay in my house, in my bedroom, in my closet, you know, whatever it is. Again, life gets so small that way. Yeah. And it's, it's convincing yourself of those irrational beliefs and kind of setting off um, like that false, false alarm in your head. Um, because you're, you're training your brain that, you know, this anxiety means danger and this is true. Um, So, you know, for me, I just wanted to touch on it a little bit. Like I find a big connection with my illness, anxiety, um, and going out into public, um, Mm -hmm. and kind of feeling panicky. So they all kind of jumble together at times for Mm -hmm. me. Um, So, you know, like specifically if I am alone, that's something Mm -hmm. that makes it difficult. Um, But like going into grocery stores, for whatever reason, it's that fluorescent light that'll trigger this realization where I kind of feel like I'm, you know, in a dream and like kind of just Mm -hmm. feel like my perception of reality is kind of altered. Um, Mm -hmm. And then once I get into that disassociation, it's like, you know, the dizziness and I then start having intrusive thoughts of, am I having a stroke? Like, am I going to pass out on the floor? So it really is. It's like symptoms trigger intrusive thoughts. Sometimes intrusive thoughts trigger symptoms. Yes. yes. Trigger all, you know, two of those. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a big, um, cycle and a lot of my exposures are going out, you know, driving by myself, going into public by myself. Yeah. So I know what, what that's like. Um, how it can easily, you know, it's not for everyone, but for me personally, it is very interconnected. Yes. Yes. Uh, More power to you because that is such hard work. And, you know, it's like, it's looking at like, we can never promise ourselves that nothing bad will happen. Like, right. Life in life, like life's uncertain. Sometimes Mm -hmm. bad things do happen. Um, They don't happen a hundred percent of the time. And so it's like you said, looking at, I'm going to let myself go out and go for a drive Mm -hmm. and tolerate the uncertainty that like something could happen. Mm -hmm. It's not a highly probable event. Um, also it could be completely fine. So, Mm -hmm. but it's important to me to have freedom in my life to choose what I do and not let my anxiety choose things for me. Yes, absolutely. And another thing I wanted to add to that is it just, these worst case scenarios that are intrusive thoughts, they always seem so likely, you know, and that that your OCD or your, you know, anxiety part of your brain is lying to you because, you know, that, that feels like it's such a, it almost creates false certainty. Like I said, like, okay, there for the worst case scenario, but you know, more often than not, it it doesn't happen, you know, in the world. So 
it's a risk you have to like accept and know that nothing's guaranteed, but, you know, focusing on something makes it seem like it is so much more probable, at least, you yeah. know, my experience. And that is where, um, you know, OCD is kind of distorting your, your reality. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, like sound the danger bell, sounding the alarm when mm -hmm. really there's not danger, but Right. the way that we've been functioning is like uncertainty can be that anxious trigger, that danger right. trigger. So even just being uncertain is dangerous. And so that's a huge piece of this work across mm -hmm. the board, whatever it is, OCD, agoraphobia, body dysmorphic mm -hmm. disorder, learning to tolerate uncertainty and learning right. that just because my brain may be telling me that I'm in danger, it doesn't necessarily mean that's true. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, we're running a little bit long, so I just wanted to <laughs> briefly kind of conclude, just in case yes. we get off of Zoom. Are these OCD-related disorders able to be recovered from? Very similar to yes. what we talked about yes. last week. Is recovery yes. possible? Recovery is completely possible. Um, I, you know, I want everyone to have hope that there is, there, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And again, it doesn't mean that, you know, everything is going to be uh, taken care of and okay, I don't have to ever worry about this ever again. I don't have to, you know, keep tabs on it. Recovery is an investment. And so, yeah. you know, someone with agoraphobia recovery is I'm going to go out and I'm going to be in public and do things. Um, I think a lot of people are going to struggle with this after, you know, kind of the dust settles from COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to do things. Um, even though maybe my brain is telling me not to, because with the evidence I have is that this is actually an okay thing to do. Maybe I don't know for sure how it'll go, but I'm going to do it anyway. And so it's like these recover recovery is like a lot of little decisions mm -hmm. to live your life the way that you want to, as opposed to living it the way anxiety or OCD wants you to. Yeah. So the significance, right. Of, of exactly those urges and those, you know, intrusive thoughts and, um, creating those new habits, habitual thoughts and new lines of thinking. Um, yeah. I think that's a common theme, right? Like, you know, fake it. Absolutely. Get, like I said, absolutely. You'll, you'll believe it one day. So, right. Right. And, you know, looking at like, you know, I'm someone that has a history of OCD or anxiety and anxiety disorder. And so for me, I need to make sure that like, I'm keeping tabs on what I'm doing and the behaviors I'm engaging in. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think that was a perfect way to conclude. Um, as far as, you know, treatment goes, obviously seeing someone that is a specialist is most ideal, but if that's not yes. feasible, do you have any specific resources or um, like more accessible platforms like, you know, workbooks or anything? I know I'm putting you on the spot. I didn't ask that's you, okay. this, but I didn't know yes. if you had any recommendations for that. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting uh, compensated for this, but I highly recommend heading to the International OCD Foundation's website for anything like OCD related body dysmorphic. There's resources on there. Um, there's a whole list of different books that are evidence-based, you know, not just kind of written by anybody, but written by people who are actually specialized in this. Um, I think workbooks are awesome, but again, kind of checking out, like, does this person actually have a specialty? Um, so also the, you know, um, American Association of Depression and Anxiety website would be a good one to head to as well. Right now with, you know, so much being tele, you know, telehealth, yes. um, there's so many free webinars out there. I feel like I'm listening to an awesome one, like constantly. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of great free resources out there for individuals who may be um, struggling to obtain, you know, one-on-one -on -one therapy. Yes, that's awesome. Yeah, now more than ever, it's like we've got, you know, yes. versus online, which is, is right. such an awesome thing. Right. Um, so there to listeners out there, there is help out there. You know, it just takes reaching out. That's the first step. And right. Um, you heard it here right. first. Recovery is possible. So <laughs> it is possible. And even if maybe, you know, a therapist is not an option for you in terms of finances or whatever the resource um, issue is, you know, feel free to reach out to a therapist and just ask them like, what kind of books would you recommend? Or, yeah. you know, what kind of like resources online would you um, suggest I head to? Because I mean, I can speak for myself. Like I love connecting people with resources, even if they're not going to do therapy, I want you to have something. Awesome. Um, so feel free again to just reach out to people and ask for help. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for Thanks, um, Maria. being on the episode today. And I think this was very informative. I, I learned that myself. So Good. thank you so much for taking the time. Yes. Thank you for having me.